We're continuing in Acts chapter 10. I'll be picking up in verse 17. Listen now for the word of God. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So when Peter invited them in and gave them lodging, the next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day, they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and falling at his feet, worshiped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, stand up, I am only a mortal. And as he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled and said to them, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with you or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, four days ago at this very hour at three o'clock, I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Therefore I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God, to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God.
Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So we ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Holy One, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Have you ever had a surprising experience, good or bad, that caused your whole worldview to change? Or perhaps even caused your whole life to change directions? An experience that upended everything you thought you knew was something you never would expect. That's what's happening with Peter in today's story, which is surprising because if you've been following this sermon series on the book of Acts, you know that Peter has been the man with an answer for everything. You notice that? It's the same Peter that Jesus named the rock upon whom the church will be built. And now it seems that God has given Peter the blueprints to the whole operation. Peter's now the leading voice of the church, the one who spoke up when something needed interpreting. Take Acts chapter 2. Why are these people speaking in multiple languages on the day of Pentecost? Peter says, because what was spoken through the prophet Joel has come to pass. Or Acts chapter 3. Why did a man lame from birth suddenly jump up and begin to walk, leaping and praising God? Peter answers, because the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has glorified Jesus Christ, and faith in his name has made this man strong. Or take Acts chapter 4. By what power or by what name do you do this? Teach the people about the resurrection of the dead. Peter says, by Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead, there is no salvation in anyone else. Or Acts chapter 5. Why are you standing in the temple teaching instead of in prison where we locked you up yesterday? Peter, because an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and we must obey God rather than any human authority. Peter had an explanation for every new thing God was doing in the first days of the early church. And he didn't hesitate to speak it or preach it. And maybe he disrupted so many people's theologies that he needed reminding that God could disrupt his too. Maybe he needed some reminding that he hadn't witnessed everything and he wasn't the holder of the complete vision and he couldn't perceive every new thing on his own. So just like every other preacher in the book of Acts, Peter runs into a revelation 
that he never saw coming. We see it before in chapters 8 and 9 with Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, Paul on a road to Damascus that Susan preached on last week, and now here with Peter on a rooftop in Joppa. You heard it. A large sheet comes down from heaven filled with all kinds of food. Only this Thanksgiving feast was made up of all sorts of animals, both clean and unclean. And you don't have to know much about Judaism to know how important keeping kosher is. It's one of those spiritual practices that distinguish Jews from non-Jews or Gentiles. The word Torah uses to describe it is holy, which means to be set apart, to not be like them, not be like the others. And Peter kept kosher his whole life. We assume Jesus did as well. But then Peter has this vision and it turns everything on its head because Peter hears this voice that says, you can eat all of it, clean and unclean, pure and impure. The voice says, you can have it all. And again, Peter knows the right answer here. He says, no, I can't. I've never eaten anything profane or unclean. It went against everything he was taught, against everything his parents had ever said about faithful living. But then this voice says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Now to be clear, it's not Peter who decided what was clean or unclean. It's in the book. It's in the Torah. It was God who said, this is clean and this is unclean. I mean, so Peter knows the right answer here. But now, is God saying something different? Is God saying that knowing the right answer is not enough? It's confusing. I wish there was some way that we could understand how important dietary law was to the people of Israel. Barbara Brown Taylor said it would be like coming to church one morning to find pork chops and scotch whiskey on the communion table instead of a cup and bread. And if that doesn't help you understand the dietary issue, Imagine anything that for you is the dividing line between Christians and other people. The one thing that makes us who we are, that's non-negotiable, that we can't let slide without letting slide our whole identity as the people of God. And when you figured out that thing, get ready to let it go. Because that's what Peter did. He had to. True to form, Peter stubbornly tried to cling to his religious assumptions. But the Holy Spirit here is even more stubborn. Three times, God gave him this vision. And it changes everything he has ever believed about who he was and how he was supposed to live. 
But before that happens, we get this little story about a man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Roman centurion of the Italian cohort. Read Gentile in all caps. Cornelius then could eat anything he wants. He's not Jewish, more of a spiritual but not religious Gentile. He prays and he gives money to the poor. And one day while he's praying, Cornelius is visited by an angel. Now the Greek word for angel is angelos, which really translates as messenger. An angel is not someone with a halo and wings per se. An angel is just one who brings a message from God. And this angel comes to Cornelius and tells him that, that there's an apostle named Peter, a Jewish man whom he's never met, but that Cornelius should summon him and listen to what he has to say. And you know what happens. He sends his trusted servants to invite Peter to return with them, and which Peter does after a nudge from the Spirit. And this is where the story gets interesting to me. Peter comes to Cornelius' house, but he's still not altogether comfortable with it. He says, God has told me what, what God has made clean I should not call profane, but, but you know it's not lawful for me to associate or visit with you Gentiles. Our whole deal is to be holy, set apart from you. You know this, Cornelius. So why did you sin for me? Cornelius says, I really don't know. I just know an angel visited me and said, you should come and we should listen to what you have to say. And this is what strikes me about the story. These men have had remarkable spiritual experiences. Peter has a vision. Cornelius is visited by an angel. I mean, as spiritual experiences go, these are sort of top-tier ones, I think. But neither one of them really knows what God is doing on their own. God gives each of them only half of the vision. The only way for them to discern what God is really up to in this moment is they have to talk to each other. It happens through conversation. Cornelius tells Peter, we're here to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. And so Peter begins telling them what he had just learned for himself. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, Peter says. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Well, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. Because Peter had just said something no one on earth had authorized him to say. He had just opened up the church to those it had previously shut out. People with whom he was not even supposed to associate with. And while he was still speaking, 
the Holy Spirit fell on everyone in the room, and they were all baptized right then and there. Peter got in big trouble for it, too. If you read on in chapter 11, when he arrived back in Jerusalem, his Jewish brothers jumped all over him. Extending baptism to a crowd of uncircumcised Gentiles? <laughs> that was a step too far. It was too quick a change to the boundaries that separate us from them. But as gently as he could, Peter tried to explain to them that this was not only a conversion of Cornelius, but his own conversion as well. Once, he says, I, I thought we were God's people and the Gentiles were not. And that's what I preached. But that was before I had my dream and, and my friend Cornelius had his vision and, and God brought us together. And now I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor religious differences, nor shrimp cocktails, nor pulled pork barbecue and oysters with cheese grits on the side could separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is what I preach. One commentator notes that the sermon of Peter's is the last sermon given by an apostle in the book of Acts. As a result of this encounter, the responsibility of folks like Peter shifts. Instead of serving as the stewards of the tradition, as the explainers of the truth, as the gatekeepers of the movement, now their responsibility is to recognize where the Holy Spirit is moving and to try and keep up. Faith, William Willimon says, is our often breathless attempt to keep up with the redemptive activity of God, to keep asking ourselves, what is God doing? Where on earth is God going now? And Peter and Cornelius asked each other that, what they discovered is that God is bigger than either of them had imagined. And the result of their conversation is the largest reformation in the history of faith, where Jews and Gentiles, people who by definition understood the other to be the other, now saw themselves as family. It's such a beautiful story. A familiar story, says Reverend Anna Carter Florence, about insiders and outsiders, befores and afters, and God's astonishing knack for messing with our heads, no matter what we think the right answers are, no matter how hard and fast the rules, God likes to change things up at a moment's notice, to flip the switch on what we think qualifies as clean and unclean, faithful and unfaithful, Christian and non-Christian, or just wildly unexpected. Because maybe what we're expecting or who we're expecting aren't everything. Maybe there's an Acts 10 question here 
Who is expecting us? Because whatever new thing God is doing, we can't perceive on our own. Whatever vision God gives us, we only get part of it. And we need to find who holds the rest. Who is expecting us? And what vision has God given them to join with ours? Whatever Peter was expecting that day on the roof in Joppa, I don't think it was Cornelius. But Cornelius was expecting him. He was expecting a person of another faith and nationality and status and privilege. And Cornelius was expecting to give Peter his full attention, to really listen to him across theological differences and real religious divides. He was willing to risk what his family and friends would think about him. What's more, he even invited them to come and hear what Peter had to say. Cornelius was expecting that whatever new thing God was about to do would require him to do some accommodating and integrating and interpreting once he figured out who held the other half of that vision. Peter preached a great sermon that day, arguably his best, but before Peter could offer his truth, he had to listen. And not easy listening either, the hard kind of listening across theological divides. It's listening past cultural differences it's listening that refrains from snap judgments, no matter what our parents taught us. It's even listening that takes place in the homes of others, while the other at our invitation speaks freely. It's listening to the other with the willingness to be changed. Because without the other here, Peter's life would have unfolded very differently, and with it, perhaps, the future of the church. I wonder about that. Do we need an encounter with Cornelius in order to perceive the next great thing? Is this what we ought to be praying for? That God would send us our own Cornelius? someone who we share deep theological differences as well as overlapping dreams. Maybe God's next big thing won't start out of a committee room, but out of a living room of someone else. Perhaps so. Maybe the book of Acts is right that we hear God best through a person we differ from most. Maybe we proclaim God best when we stop aiming at the conversion of others and start listening for our own conversions. Maybe our biggest aversions, our greatest fears, are really invitations to God's next thing. This is a story that's important to me in my own faith. It's an important story about 
how I understand my own call to ministry. Because as much as any story, this story bears witness to the power of conversation. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that we live in a violent world and the greatest single antidote to violence is conversation. It is the speaking our fears, listening to the fears of others, and in that sharing of vulnerabilities, discovering a genesis of hope. In a world where we weaponize our differences, this community needs a place where civil conversation can happen, where no topic is off limits. It needs a safe place to talk about the world as it is and to imagine the world as it might be. In this bifurcated, binary culture, there needs to be a third way. We need a commitment, not just to be right, but to be righteous. Righteousness, it's not a statement on how you are on the issues. Righteousness is about how you are on your relationships. The world tells you that you need to be right about the issues, and, and that's important work, but, but we know this about ourselves. Once we find ourselves in that place where we feel we are right about this or that, there comes the temptation to distance ourselves from those whom we deem to be not right. We find ourselves thinking, it is not lawful for me to associate with you, the unrighteous. But this story says determining you are right is not enough. You also have to be righteous. And that's relational work. That work needs conversation. And sometimes, maybe even particularly now, it's the only way for people who are right to really see what God is up to. In fact, maybe even the moment we are so sure we know just exactly what is right, maybe that's when the Spirit comes again, upending everything we thought we knew and offering something better. It would be nice to have some blueprints for what's next in this crazy world, but I'm not sure that's what we need. Perhaps like Peter, we, we need to be open to being surprised by God, to being surprised by the other. Because there's Cornelius, who is out there somewhere expecting us to bring our half of this messy, beautiful, God-sized vision. That communion we say that People will come from east and west, north and south to sit at table together. May the Spirit then send us out like Peter and meet them there. May it be so. Amen.